Let's take our Bibles then and open them to Philippians chapter 3. To begin the message tonight, I have to take you back to something that Paul says in the second chapter that we studied a few weeks ago, a very important statement that he makes in verse number 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Tonight I want to talk to you about the ultimate workout. And I'm speaking of the method that Paul used himself to do the very thing that he encouraged the Philippians to do. And uh, one of the things that Paul did very often in his preaching and teaching, he, he liked to use athletic references, athletic terms. He speaks of running races, he talks about pressing forward, he talks about reaching the prize. And there's one analogy in 1 Corinthians where he uses the analogy of a boxer. And he says, I don't fight as one who beats the air. And the picture that he's given us is of a boxer that practices by throwing punches into the air. So what I'm doing tonight, I'm actually kind of following Paul's sports analogies when I talk about the ultimate workout. People go to gyms and they go to work out and they're always looking for that one exercise machine, just that, that one machine that will give them the best burn. What can I do to exercise my muscles, to uh, tone them up and get, give me the feeling that I've really accomplished something? And that's what I'm trying to get across to you tonight. Paul had the ultimate workout for a Christian, and he concentrated on the one major thing that would make him absolutely successful in his Christian living. Remember, years ago now, when, when Pastor Cregan was here, that he was fond of using sports analogies in his preaching. And there was a lady in the church who wrote me a letter and told me that she was just tired of hearing all those sports analogies, hearing about football every Sunday and so she was complaining to me about his preaching. Well, I uh, just wrote back to her and said, well, you really can't complain too much because that is a biblical method because the Apostle Paul used it. And you can't complain about the Apostle Paul. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So what's Paul's ultimate workout? Let's see if we can learn something about it tonight. Stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, let's start in uh, verse number 12. We'll read down to verse number 14. He says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who've come out to hear your word tonight. Open up the text to us, Lord. Help us to understand. May we learn something about Paul's methods for becoming a successful Christian. Bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These verses that we've just read in, in Philippians chapter 3 are quite confusing to some people. Uh, this almost seems like a, a riddle as we're reading this, and sometimes these are the kinds of passages that we find in the King James Bible that turn people off and sort of steer them towards the modern Bible versions where they think that they can understand things a little bit better. In our forum class a few weeks ago, we were discussing a uh, group of 
fundamentalists who are arguing about whether the King James Bible is uh, a preserved translation or is it an inspired translation. I don't really want to get into that controversy tonight. I actually am going to talk about it a little bit in a couple of weeks. But for those who think that the King James translators were inspired to write King James English, those very same preachers need to stop rearranging the words to try to explain it if that's what they think. Because what we're doing when we preach is that we're always putting the words of the Bible into other words so that we can explain them so people can understand what's being said. And this is one of those kind of twisting, winding texts that we have to put into other words so that you can understand it. Now, there's some misconceptions that people have uh, about this particular text that Paul, people think that Paul is arguing one of two things. Some say that he's really not too sure about his salvation, and so he's hoping that in the end everything will turn out all right. And we know that that really can't be what Paul means because there's no one in Scripture, maybe without the, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, who who talks so much about perseverance and preservation and how our faith in the Lord is secure. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 6 and in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 and Romans 8, 28 through 39, uh, just a few of the references that we can go to in the Word of God and find that once we have put our faith in Jesus when we are believers, when we have been saved, there is no possibility that a Christian could ever lose his salvation. And so... We're not going to, we, we wouldn't think that Paul would raise something that's totally contradictory here to what he's said before. So he's not wondering about whether in the end he's actually going to be saved. But then there's a second view that looks at this and says that Paul is probably talking about the resurrection here. And in some of your Bibles, there may be a subheading that has a break between verses 11 and 12. And that might lead you to think that Paul is going on to a different subject as he gets into verse number 12. But then there are other Bibles, perhaps that are not study Bibles, and they'll, you have verse 11 right up next to verse number 12, as the text reads. And uh, so some people think that what he's talking about here then is the resurrection. Paul's talking about achieving the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, in effect, is saying here, I've not yet attained to the resurrection of the dead. Well, that'd be a very strange statement for Paul to make as he's writing these people a letter. I mean, if he's writing them a letter, I mean, don't you think that uh, he has enough confidence in their ability to understand things that he doesn't have to explain to them, I'm not dead yet. Uh, He would at least credit them with that much. And so Paul's not saying, I'm not dead yet, but I'll let you know when I am. So he's not talking here about his personal resurrection from the dead, saying that he's trying to attain that. But what Paul is speaking of here... He's referring to apprehending the very main thing that he spent his whole Christian life striving to do. And that's what we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, where he talks about having the mind of Christ. It's also what we have in verse number 8, where he speaks about knowing Christ. And we preached about that a little while ago, about experiencing Christ, really knowing the power of Christ's resurrection that we find there in verse number 10. And so when Paul is speaking here, he's talking about this single-mindedness that he has to reach that one goal. And just to show you how persistent that he is in this, It's interesting to look at the different words that are translated in our Bible. If you look back at uh, verse number 6 in this chapter, he says, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. 
And if you look at verse number 12, in the second phrase, he says, I follow after. And in verse number 14, he says, I press toward the mark. Now, it's interesting that persecuting in verse number 6, follow in verse number 12, press in verse number 14, are actually all exactly the same word in the Greek text. And what that tells us is that with the very same fervor that Paul persecuted the church before he became a Christian, he also pursued his knowledge of Christ after he became a Christian. So Paul was a very single-minded person. He hated Christians so much before he was saved that it was his focus, it was his life's work to stamp out Christianity. And he wasn't content just to let people harass Christians. He sought out permission that he might actually become the Jewish terminator. He wanted to, uh, wanted to rid the world of Christians. But then after he became saved, he loved Christ so much that that became the focus of his life's work. And his focus was to know everything that he could about Christ. And so he explored every avenue, every nook, every cranny, every intricacy of the knowledge of Christ. He looked into it to see how much of it he could really understand. So here we have in these verses Paul's personal expression of how he worked out his salvation. Now, the danger in using Paul as an example, I mean, if I could use that word danger, the danger of it is we look at Paul as an unattainable example. We say that Paul is too far high above us. I mean, we can never reach the place that, that Paul preached, uh, reached. So, uh, so he's really an unrealistic example for us. We really don't have all the capabilities that Paul had. Well, notice that Paul never presented himself in that way. He never would give us the idea that he is something that every Christian here tonight could not be. I mean, the Bible never does say that Paul had some kind of special abilities that Christians today don't have. Now, we do know, of course, that he did things like he raised or he healed people and and he was able to cast out demons. He could do things like that. But that had nothing at all to do with the closeness of, of having fellowship with Christ. And so the only difference between you and I as Christians here today and the Apostle Paul is the focus that we have. And that's the single-minded focus that Paul had to just be like Christ, to be everything that Christ was and to get as close to him as he could possibly be. And so what he was doing, he was constantly working out his salvation. He told the Philippians, that's what you need to do. And, of course, As we come down to our text tonight, it's exactly the same thing he tells us to do. So how do we do that? How how can we get the maximum burn out of the ultimate workout? Well, number one, we do it by realizing the gains of the Christian life. Back when we were looking at the Christian P&L statement, we saw how that uh, Paul was throwing out all of the losses in his life and then began to realize the gains. You remember all those things that Paul counted as gain? He, he uh, put things into his plus column, like the ceremonies that he went through, the heritage that he had. He spoke about his family and about his education, about his dedication, all of those things he had over in his plus column. But then he says, I have to get rid of all those things because they're not really gain to me. Those things are lost. And he began to realize the gains of his life when he looked at the righteousness of Christ. And when he began to... Think about his own justification in the eyes of God and how God changed him through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. When he thought about how he was sanctified in Christ, 
And then how all of that would culminate in the greatest gain of all, which is our glorification with Christ. So here's what he understood about this. First, that it's not absolute perfection. Realizing the gains of the Christian life does not mean that we have to become absolutely perfect. Because what Paul is doing here, he's not looking at a hopeless goal in, the, in his life. I mean, in his life, he would never gain perfection. So he doesn't put that out there and think that somehow I'm going to be absolutely perfect. And there are some who may think that when Paul talked about throwing things away and getting rid of all these personal gains that he had in his life and talking about totally depending upon the sufficiency of Christ, when he began speaking things like in chapter 2 where he writes about being blameless and harmless, about being a Christian that's without rebuke, that they may have looked at him and they thought, well, Paul has reached that plateau of sinless perfection. And so here is Paul now. He's standing up on top of the world. He's at the pinnacle of the mountain. He's looking down at all of us struggling Christians who are trying to get up to the same place that he is. But Paul has reached that place of perfection. Verse number 12 very quickly dispels that notion because Paul doesn't want them to think that there is any such thing as sinless perfection in this life or that it's a Bible doctrine. And so he says in verse 12, I have not attained, I'm not perfect. And there are some who completely ignore what Paul says in that verse because they do believe that it's possible for a person to become sinlessly perfect. And so they teach a doctrine that's called a second work of grace. And that's after you get saved, that the Holy Spirit does something different in your life after salvation, and the Holy Spirit in an instantaneous act can actually make you perfect. Well, Paul's not speaking of that. He doesn't want people to think that's a Bible doctrine because you can't find that anywhere in the Scriptures. We're not going to become perfect in this life. Well, then there are some who take the opposite extreme. Then they say, well, I can't be perfect in this life, so what does it matter if I sin? And so Paul's not giving here a license, certainly not for anyone to sin. And so we just don't throw up our hands and say, I can't be perfect, and so therefore I'll just give sin a whirl. What we really have to do when we become saved, and this is what happens in a true Christian's heart, is that he begins to shed the sin of his life. And when you begin to pursue the excellency of Christ and the knowledge of Christ, then those sins, as the Word of God says, that so easily beset you, those kinds of sins are going to fall away when you pursue Christ. Now, that leads me to a second observation. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We can't be absolutely perfect But it is our constant ambition. We never stop with this. We always look at Christ and keep our eyes on him and try to attain the life that he wants us to live. Now look here a little closer at verse number 12. He says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, I said that's a little bit hard to understand, so let me rephrase the last part of that. He says, if I may get hold of what Christ got hold of me for. Now, I don't know if that helps a little bit, but we're going to explain that. Christ got hold of Paul. And if you wanted to use the sports analogy, you could say he tackled Paul. I mean, on the Damascus Road, uh, Christ appeared to him in that bright, shining light. He knocked Saul to the ground. And Christ got hold of him in such a way that there was no way that Paul could escape. And neither at that point did he want to escape because Christ had conquered his heart. Christ had changed him and changed his whole outlook on his life. 
And he did something even more radical than that even. And that is that Christ changed his nature. He gave him a new nature. He regenerated him. And so what happened on the road to Damascus, Saul went down the road as Saul. But when that experience was over, it wasn't going to be long until he was the Apostle Paul. Now here then is where the stakes are raised when we talk about salvation and what happens next in our Christian life. Because Christ did not lay hold on Paul just for his salvation. And he didn't lay hold on him just for his justification. He didn't get hold of him just so Paul would stop persecuting Christians. He didn't get hold of him just so that Paul could become a witness for him. There was really a much higher, a much higher thing in view for the Apostle Paul. And it was to take him to a place that most Christians, quite frankly, really do not attain. Now, it's so sad that many Christians become very complacent about salvation. They think that getting saved, that's all that they really need to know. They've got that taken care of, and they really never get any higher. But Christ apprehended Paul to bring him to a certain place. This is in verse number 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And Paul states that sentiment in another way in Titus chapter 2. There it says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So Christ laid hold on Paul that Paul might lay hold upon or that he might apprehend his perfect communion with Christ. So it's not just that he would be delivered from the punishment of sin. And that's what most people, of course, are are looking for in their salvation. Get me out of the penalty. Get me out of the punishment. Get me up from on my way to hell. Get me on my way to heaven. And they stop right there. But what Paul desired and what Christ laid hold on Paul for was to deliver him from the power of sin in his body and the pollution of sin. And that is simply a level on which most Christians do not live. Most Christians are flirting with sin. And what they're doing, they're putting their toes as close to the line as they can get. They're walking that thin line, tiptoeing, hoping that they're not going to fall over completely into the cesspool of sin. And so they're walking so close to the edge that you could say you could smell it on their clothes. You could smell the filth on them. And that's not what Christ laid hold on us for. He laid hold on us to lift us to a place that's higher, to lift us to a place where it's a different level, where there is no pollution of sin in us. So our constant ambition is to be like Christ. And as we strive for that ultimate burn, to be what Christ is, then we have to do what comes next. This is a very important part of the message tonight. Number two is maintaining the growth of the Christian life. That's what we have to do. We have to maintain our growth in our Christian life. Now look at some of the terms that Paul uses. In verse number 12, he says, follow after, apprehend. Verse number 13, forgetting, reaching forth. Verse 14, press toward, high calling. And all of those are action words. You see, some people think that getting saved is just sitting down, and now we let God do whatever it is that God is going to do. And so the Christian life becomes a very passive life. 
But that's not at all what we're saved for. We're to be active in our Christian lives. There's always to be movement in our Christian lives. I mean, Paul wouldn't, Paul wouldn't have called this a race, and he wouldn't talk about running if he intended that in our lives that we'd be spectators. We're to join in the race. We're not to sit by. This is to be a continual growth process. And in order to reach Paul's level, a Christian must keep growing. You have to maintain that growth. Now, let me give you here four reasons why you need to maintain growth in your Christian life. Number one is that it's for God's glory. I mean, how many times have you heard me say this? Salvation is not all about you. Everything that's created in this world and everything that God does with you is for one purpose, and that is for his glory. All of it's related to God's glory. So you're saved for God's glory. It's God's intention to glorify you for this purpose, that you will have an eternal glorification where you glorify him forever. Salvation is not taught that way in most places. I mean, that's why people get into arguments on things like free will. Does a man really have free will? And they want to argue over that issue. Why does a person argue about free will? Well, the only reason to argue for it is because you have your eyes on yourself and not on God. They're too interested that that God may control something in my life. And so, what about our free will? What about that? That's a man who has eyes on himself. Now, God's interested in you for his glory. His, your salvation is a, is a wonderful byproduct of God's glory. And thank him for that. And stop thinking about how valuable you are to him. You know, Christians would do a lot better, and we'd be thinking a, more, a, lot, a, a lot more like Christ. We'd be much closer to God's way of thinking if we started thinking about how valuable that Christ is to us rather than how valuable that we are to him. See, we grow for God's glory, so God enables us to conquer sin in our lives for his glory. He's going to complete our salvation in heaven. That will be for his glory. There will be no sin there in us, and that will be for his glory. We're going to be in heaven for God's glory. So the best thing that we need to do right now is start thinking about his glory and start doing as much as we can to give God his glory. Then the second reason that you really need to grow in your Christian life is for your assurance. You need to grow for your assurance. This is how you know that you're really saved. I mean, who is it that sits around all the time wondering if their salvation is real? Worrying about, have I really trusted Christ if I really believe? Well, that would be the Christian who's not growing. These are people that wonder, did I really get saved? And they're always concerned about whether they're saved. And so if you're stunted and you're stagnant in your Christian growth, it's no wonder that you have doubts. You see, Christ didn't intend for us to leave the Christian life in the same way that we entered it. There needs to be some growth. And that's what Paul complained about to the Corinthians. I mean, it, 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 they had trusted Christ and it had been a long time since they'd been saved. And now Paul comes back where he writes to them and he laments the fact that he can't speak to them as someone who has grown spiritually. There is no growth in their lives. So he says, I can't speak to you as those that are spiritual. I have to speak to you as those that are carnal. You are babes in Christ. I can't give you strong doctrine. I can't give you strong meat because you haven't grown. And when Christians don't grow, this is why pastors spend a lot of their time mediating disputes and trying to settle arguments. Christians who grow don't live that way. Now, thirdly, then, you need to grow for others' benefit. And here, I'm principally speaking about lost people. 
You need to grow because there are people out there that are lost and they need a viable testimony of the faith lived in front of their eyes. Now, I realize that there is a need for confrontational evangelism, but I also know that you can't do it until the groundwork of relationship of evangelism has been established. And what I mean is that you can't be successful and winning friends and family and co-workers, whoever it might be, unless you live a right testimony before them. See, the world is rife with hypocrisy. Lost people are looking for the hypocrisy in Christians. And when they see it, when they identify it, they'll walk away from it. And rightly, they should. There's nothing there to attract them. We need to understand that also that what one person does in the name of Christianity, and this means you, it means me, and how do we live our lives, what one person does in the name of Christianity becomes the mantra for all Christians, even if we haven't even been involved in the sins and the problems that other Christians have. We have to live our Christian lives to overcome the bad influence that so many Christians have put out there. Now, when a pastor of a church gets involved in an affair and falls when a TV preacher gets involved in something like that, when a church in Kansas pickets and holds up signs that says God hates homosexuals, when there are people who stand on street corners with signs and yell at passing cars, all of us as Christians are characterized by that. And so we have to live to overcome that. If you're going to win people, you can't live like the world and you can't be a complete nut either. See, the Holy Spirit, thankfully, overcomes a lot of that. And he overcomes the foolishness that a lot of Christians put out there. And if it was left up to many Christians to perpetuate the Lord's church in this world, we'd be in very, very sad shape. Thank the Lord that he's able able to overcome our mistakes. So you need to do it. You need to grow because of other people who need to hear the gospel of Christ. Then there's a fourth reason, and this is important for our church, You need to grow for all the body. I mean, you need to grow for every person that's a part of the body of Christ, for the church itself. You need to grow in order to help the ministry of your church. Let me put this to you very simply. Who are we going to call on to do the ministry in the church if the whole church is made up of a bunch of thumb-sucking Christians? I mean, always got problems, always something going on, always some sin in their life that they can't conquer. Who are we going to call on to be the leaders of the church? Who's going to take the teaching positions when we can't find anybody who's qualified because all the people are holding on to these little vices that they have that they refuse to turn loose of? Who are we going to call on to be teachers and helpers if their personal lives are consistently bad testimonies? You know, I'm amazed to find out that if after all the preaching that I've done on, on these kinds of things, that there are some Christians who are still confused. Should I drink alcohol? Should I not drink alcohol? There are some Christians who are confused. Should I smoke or should I not smoke? Is that all right is it, or is it not all right? Uh, I, I'm a Christian. Is it all right if I come to church showing my cleavage and having a dress to clear up to my rear end and having pants on so tight that you have to peel them off when you get home? I'm amazed that people even have to wonder about things like that after preaching the Word of God. And what I'm trying to tell you is that the pursuit of Christ, apprehending what Paul talks about apprehending, is supposed to change all of that. 
And if it doesn't change that, there has been no growth. You're not growing as you should. You're not pursuing the things of Christ properly if there's still that sin in your life and you wonder about those kinds of things. Can I do it? Can I not do it? Well, just think, is it better for me to do this? Can I be closer to the Lord doing this than I am otherwise? Why is this such a confusing thing? It's not confusing at all. It's because the problem is we don't have the singular focus that Paul has. And that's the difference between us and him. We just don't have the focus to serve Christ in the right way. Well, you know, some people say, well, you know, they've told me, you don't, pa- you don't really preach enough on this kind of thing. You don't, you don't talk enough about these kinds of things. Well, I'm talking about it tonight. Unfortunately, maybe some of the people need to hear it aren't here. Buy them a, get them a CD, I don't know. Um, but we need to talk about it. And, and it, it, if you see the results of this is whether people get mad or they get glad because somebody told them you need to apprehend in a different way than you're trying. So let's move on here, though. Uh, the scriptures are about these scriptures that Paul's given us here. They're about realizing the gains. They're about maintaining the growth. But the third thing I want to talk to you about is reaching the goal of the Christian life. In verse 14, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Christian life, again, is always movement. You can't be stagnant. And, of course, we surely can't go backwards. And there were some things that Paul did that helped to encourage the people to make sure that they could pursue Christ in the same way that he did, to apprehend Christ in the same way that he did. Now, the first one is... The thing that's going to help you is self-examination. There must be self-examination. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Now that tells us that there is some introspection in Paul's life. He's thinking about this. He's examining where he is, what he's done. He's assessing the growth of his own life. That's not the same thing as saying that he had doubts about whether he's a Christian because he has no doubt. But he's taking that inward look where he's seeing, am I growing as I should? I've got that self-examination, so he's measuring growth. I remember a few years ago, I was preaching a New Year's sermon, and I, 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 I said, this is a good place for you to check up on where you are. Are you at the same place spiritually this year that you were last year? And if you're not, then that means if you're not progressing, or if you are, I should say, that means you're not growing. If you're not progressing, you're not growing. If there's not, if you haven't taken more steps, if you haven't learned more, if you haven't gotten closer, if you haven't become stronger, then you haven't grown in your Christian life. So we need to assess how well that we're really doing. But I think another question for for all of us here as we think about self-examination is, are you afraid to look? And I think there are some Christians who may be just afraid to look because they know exactly what they're going to find out. You know, in school, a teacher gives an exam, a teacher gives a test to find out how much do the students know, how much are they progressing, what, what have they learned. And most students don't like to be tested. And especially they don't like pop quizzes because the pop quiz tells the teacher exactly how much you've learned, how, how, how are you progressing. And so they just don't like to be tested because we don't want to really look at it and see how much we do know. And that's the way it is a lot of times with a Christian's life. There is no self-examination because we're afraid of what we're going to find out. Then we're confronted with it. We have to do something about it because we can't ignore it at that point. Christians don't ignore it. 
mean, a person who's really been saved, he's going to search out his life, and he wants to be like Christ. When he finds out this area of my life is not like Christ, then what I want to do is correct it. I want to get it changed. So some are afraid of what they're going to find out, and so they stop examining, and when you stop examining, you will stop growing. Now, Paul uses a great word here. He says, I count not myself to have apprehended. The word count there is the same word as reckon. And it's one of those words, it's a financial term. It's just like we were talking about in that P&L statement. What he's doing here, he's balancing the accounts of his life, just like he did in that P&L statement earlier, to find out, am I gaining on this prize or am I losing ground? So there's self-examination. The second thing a Christian needs to do is have singleness in concentration. Verse number 13 says, this one thing I do. You know, there's an old saying about a person who diversifies himself in his job or in his work. They say about a person like that, he's a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And Paul did not want to come to the place in his Christian life where he was a jack of all trades and a master of none. He wanted to be focused on what God called him to do to ensure that he will not fall short of his goal. So he says things like this. He says, I forget the things that are behind. And that's a problem for many Christians. They, they, they can't focus on what their next step is because they're always looking at what they've already done. And they're always counting on what they've already done, looking at past accomplishments, how I used to serve God. And that's what occupies their mind. Not what I'm going to do for God today, but I want to tell people what I used to do for God. You know, living in the past is like trying to live this year on last year's money. Last year's money's already spent. Unless you have some hopes and some plans to make more money this year, you're going to end up in the poorhouse. That's the way it is spiritually. You have to keep going. You can't be looking back. So Paul had this concentration where he did not let all of the distractions of life get to him to slow him down. Now, as a runner, a runner, when he runs, he can't get distracted by things that are around him because he will slow down. And in your life, in your Christian life, you can get distracted by all these other things you can do. You get distracted with too much work. You get too much recreation, too many hobbies. There's, there's too much TV. There's too much of whatever. And when you get distracted by that, it will stunt your growth. It slows you down. Well, there's one more thing I want to mention about reaching the goal, and that is sureness of our location. A runner does not run around and look at how much ground that he's covered. He's not going to get his prize until he finishes the race. So you can't stop and admire what you've already accomplished. Now, again, it's good to do the examination, but as you examine, make sure where you are, but don't be so proud of how far that you've come that you get tempted to stop right where you are. Now here, in this particular place of Paul's life, as he writes to the Philippians, he could be, as they're reading this and and they're thinking about what Paul's done, they could say, well, Paul's really come a long way. He's a long way from what he was on the road to Damascus. He was a persecutor there. Now he's become the greatest proponent of Christianity there is. He has really come a long way. And so Paul could be tempted to look back at all the miles that he'd traveled, all the souls that he'd won, all the crowns that are laid up in heaven, and he could say, well, that's enough. I've got all that I need. I don't need to go any further. That's plenty for me. But Paul knew better than that. He knew that there was always more service. There's never 
enough service that's done in a Christian's life. As long as there's one soul that's left unsaved, as long as there's one Christian who's yet to be taught and needs to learn more, as long as there is one day, there is one hour, there is one minute, there's still time to do something else for the Lord. It's not time to sit down. It's time to keep busy. There's still more that can be done. And so when Paul says, I press toward the mark, you can feel the burn in him. He's pursuing He's relentless. He's not going to let up. He keeps on running and running and running. And he maximizes all of his efforts in the direction of the Lord. That's his ultimate workout. He never stopped because what's his goal? To come into the fullness of the knowledge of Christ. To have an experience with Christ that cannot be had in any other way. Unless he pursues him without ever looking back. And keeping that as the one desire of his life to have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, verse 5. And so Paul encouraged them to work out their salvation. And along the way, he gave them a great example of how they were to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. Lord, I just pray that everyone who's come here this evening may have this as the focus of their life, to pursue Christ in all ways, in all things, always striving to be pleasing, to be a good example, a good testimony, a good worker, strong in the faith, and one who can relay this message to others that they might have the hope in them as well. Lord, bless our time of invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.